you glad you're here today? Good, good. We'll see if you still feel that way in about 35 minutes, but we're, we are glad that you're here. And uh, last, last sermon, hour before this, I was having some, some voice issues, so if that happens, uh, I'll be drinking some water. But, I, you know, I didn't tell the last service as they watched me struggle through this that, yeah, I kind of got something in my voice, but I tested negative for COVID yesterday afternoon. But anyway, after the service, I was walking through the atrium. Everybody was real friendly before the service, but after the service, like every, the crowds were just parting. You know, it felt very cool. But anyway, it's just trying to avoid me. But uh, we are, we are going to talk about something today that is huge in our lives. It's something that's deadly in our lives. And it's the issue of pride. We're going to take a deep dive into the story of Esther and one particular part of that where pride reigns unchecked in a person's life and it leads to all kinds of destruction. So as we, as we do that, uh, and I want you to think about this, pride is especially deadly for those who don't think they have it. And as we get going here, we're in Esther chapter 3. If you'll bear with me one more time, I want to set the context for you. Uh, the Old Testament goes like this, you know, there's creation, and then there, we brought sin into the world, and then uh, finally God deals with that with a flood, then later there's this Tower of Babel, and then people are just scattered throughout the earth and drifting further and further from God, and then God grabs one guy. He just picks one guy Abraham, and then he says, the entire earth, all people can be blessed through him. And so Abraham is, God tells him to go leave where he's at, which is like in Iraq somewhere, and go to Canaan, Palestine. And so he does that. And then God gives him this promise that his people, he'll be the father of a special nation, but also many nations, but through him, the world would be blessed, that the Messiah will come through his line, and so all that's happening. Then we fast forward to his grandson is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who head the 12 tribes of Israel later, and they're living there in Canaan, but a drought happens and things get sideways, and they end up going down to Egypt, where one of the sons is down there, and he's become kind of a higher-up guy. And so everything's good for a while, but then uh, after those gener first generations die, <clears throat> that uh, there's problems, and these people become en enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, 400 years. And finally, they start crying out to God, and God answers them by raising up a guy named Moses, and then Moses goes to Egypt. He had fled there earlier in his life from there. And he goes there, and then he confronts Pharaoh, and we've all seen the movie and how that all plays out. And then the people are allowed to go, but then at the last minute, Pharaoh changes his mind. They go through uh, the Red Sea, and everything's good. They get to the Negev. They get to this desert area north of the Red Sea. While they're there, it doesn't really get much smoother. <clears throat> Moses receives the law. But as they're traveling on their way back to their homeland, they, they are attacked by a lot of enemies. And the main enemy that was attacking them then was some people called the Amalekites. And what they were doing is wherever Israel went, because there were a lot of people, they would come up behind and they would pick off the women, the children, the sick, anybody who was, couldn't keep up with the group, the Amalekites would just slaughter them. 
They were raiders. They were plunderers. That's just the way they were nomadic. That's the way they lived. And then later when Israel finally went into the promised land, into Canaan, what is now Israel, while they were living there, the same thing was happening. The Amalekites kept raiding and plundering, raiding and plundering. And then finally, God tells Israel's first king, whose name is Saul, he tells them, hey, get an army together and go wipe those people out, the Amalekites. So Saul gets an army together, they go, and God gives them victory, but Saul doesn't do what God said to do. He doesn't completely wipe them out. He actually takes spoil and plunder, which he was not supposed to do, and then he let the king of the Amalekites, was a guy named Agag, he lets him live, and he wasn't supposed to do that. And so now, after Saul, there's some more kings, and then there's prophets, and there are these leaders who keep, and a lot of those people are trying to point the people back to God, but the people, God's people, keep worshiping false gods, and then finally, God allows them to be conquered through the prophet Jeremiah said that this was going to happen. He told them, you keep doing this, I'm going to allow a foreign country to come in and take you guys captive. And so that happened with Assyria first, and then Babylon, Babylon Uh, takes over Judah, the southern kingdom, and controls uh, Jerusalem. And then in three waves, they take a bunch of Jewish people back to Babylon. Now that brings us to the time of Esther. The only difference is now Babylon has fallen. Persia is now taking over all the land that Babylon once had. And Persia lets some of the Jewish people go back to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the first temple Uh, that had been destroyed, Solomon's temple. And so all that's happened, and then that brings us right down to the time of Esther. Now, Esther is is a a young lady who's an orphan, who the book's named after, and she has an older cousin named Mordecai who has taken her in because she was an orphan and raised her. And so that's how all this kind of gets started. But the whole book of Esther is about just one sort of coincidence after another. And even though God is never mentioned, we see as we get through the whole thing, we see the hand of God all over the place, weaving through the story and making it all work out where it has got to be God. All these coincidences have got to be God. Does that make sense? And you know what I mean by coincidence? It happens in our lives a lot. Uh, something just happened this last week. My brother, Monty, uh, who lives in Colorado, just a few weeks ago, retired from teaching. He's also a football coach and may continue doing that, but he was just, and he also does some other things, but he was thinking, you know, I like to travel. I have a big truck. He's a big camper guy. And so he says, hey, I'm, I'm checking into being a transporter of campers. And so he is looking at doing that. Well, most of the campers in the United States are made where? In Indiana, you know, Goshen, Indiana, and and that area. And so there's a whole bunch of camper manufacturers, and then there's a whole bunch of little transport companies. And so he just picks one. He says, there's so many. just picks one out of the blue. And then he says, I have to go to an orientation. So I'm going to go out there, go to the orientation, which is on Tuesday and Wednesday, just a few days ago. And then after that's over, I'm going to pick up a camper. Then I'm going to stop at your house. Then I'm going to go deliver that camper. Then I'm going to come back to your house hang out a couple days, come to church. He was here for service. And then we'll all kind of head back and stop at Carissa's and and I'll take mom home. So that's the way, because mom's still with us. So that's the way that was all playing out. Well, he gets to this class, again, one of many, and he sits there and in the class, 
one of the guys, just in his little circle, not class-wide, but somebody kind of near Monty said something about, yeah, I've been a trucker and something about going through Colorado. And Monty says, I live in Colorado, Pueblo, Colorado. And then the guy says, well, where's Pueblo? And then the guy sitting right behind Monty says, it's just south of Colorado Springs. And so later, Monty asked this guy, so are you from Colorado? You know, you answered that pretty fast. And the guy says, yeah, I'm from Pueblo too. And so now they're both from Pueblo, just kind of odd. And so they're talking. So then Monty says, well, where are you from in Pueblo? And the guy says, Pueblo West. And Monty says, I'm from Pueblo West too. Now, Pueblo West is like 70 square miles west of Pueblo. It's kind of a big spread out place. And so then the guy says, well, where do you live in Pueblo West? And Monty says, I live near the general store on the west side. And then that guy says, I live near the general store on the... And here these two guys, they had guys from Alaska, all over the United States are in this class, and they live half a mile from each other. So that's a coincidence, right? But it doesn't stop there. So now Monty, come, the class is over on Wednesday, he picks up a camper, he drives to our house, and he's going to be at our house Wednesday night. I'm here at church, I get out of here about 8.30, and so I call Monty on the way home, where are you at? You know, how close are you? When are you going to be at our house? And then, you know, he's my brother, so he starts giving me the business. Well, you know, he's just not really answering my question. And about that time that we're on this phone conversation, I'm on Finnefrock, and I pull up to 19, and then right in front of me on 19, I see a dually pickup with a brand new camper, and I'm like, oh, that's him. So I turn right, and I'm following this camper, and I said, well, I know where you're at because I'm right behind you. And then he says, no, actually, I'm sitting at your kitchen table. And so I'm following this camper, and I'm waiting for my house on the left-hand side, and then right before our driveway, this camper puts on its left signal. And then it pulls into the driveway right before our driveway. And I know my neighbor there is named Eddie, and I know that's not his camper because he just got a bigger and better camper that's in his barn, and I know he just got a truck. And then I realize Eddie just retired recently too. And so I'm looking at Monty's rig in my driveway, and I'm looking at his rig in his driveway. So I walk over there, and I say, Eddie, are you, are you transporting this camper? He goes, yeah, just got a job today transporting campers. I'm like, what, what company is that with? Same company. And so then I call Monty over. Monty comes over, and they're talking, and they, re they recognize each other. They were sitting right across the aisle of each other in the same class. And so then they start talking about what they're going to do next. And the next day, they're going to take their, their load. And then they realize they're both going to the exact same place in New York. And so that's more than a That's just weird, right? So Monty goes to place, some routine class. And he's there with a guy who lives a half a mile from him from Pueblo, Colorado. And my neighbor. So strange, strange. That's how the book of Esther is. God's not mentioned, but all these coincidences keep piling up, piling up, piling up, and they don't stop. They just keep going and going and going to where when you read through the end of it, you're going, okay, that has to be God. There's no way this could happen any other way. Not one, not two, but 20 coincidences that all work out, and it could only be God. So, and that Esther's story started this way, if you remember. She's a, a Jewish orphan girl living with her older cousin Mordecai in Susa. They didn't go back to Israel, though they could have. And then, against all odds, uh, the queen is 
sort of banished, and then they have this beauty contest to find another queen. And it turns out, out of all the people in the empire that they picked, Josephus says about 400 women, but against all odds, Esther is picked as one of these women, and she gets drafted into this beauty contest. And then, against all odds, she wins, and she becomes the queen. And so things are getting better, and it's been a few years. And then after that, Mordecai, who's kind of a lower-level government official, he unveils a plot where two people are planning who work for King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, as it said in Esther. He discovers a plot where two people are going to kill King Xerxes. So he tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the king investigates the plot and finds out that it's a real deal, and he kills the two people. But that's kind of all forgotten, and and Mordecai has forgotten. Mordecai doesn't really know the king. He never talked to the king, and the king just kind of quickly forgets that that whole thing happened. So that things are really good. I mean, Esther's the queen, and Mordecai's done done something really great, even though the king hasn't really thanked him for it. But then, because of pride... The story gets really dark, really fast. And so the first thing that I want to talk to you about in Esther chapter 3 is I want to talk about the character of pride, or more specifically, what pride is. And if you want to follow along in the Bible on on the back of the the chair in front of you, it's page 511, 511, Esther chapter 3. So beginning in verse 1, we are introduced to the villain of the story. And the villain of the story that we've not seen yet in the first two chapters is a man named Haman. And here's how it starts. After these events, what I just described to you, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. So here all of a sudden, this new character, the villain, is introduced. History tells us who this guy is. But if you're closely paying attention, you might have heard something familiar. He's the son, did you catch it, of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Agag was the king that Saul didn't kill, the king of the Amalekites. And so this guy is a descendant of the Amalekites, and and maybe King Agag himself seems like. And so that all kind of sounds familiar. So this guy Haman becomes second in the kingdom. He's the prime minister to Xerxes or Ahasuerus. It starts again in verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? So you see the situation? This new guy Haman's promoted Xerxes says, everybody bow to him. Mordecai doesn't bow. All the guys that work with Mordecai are going, what are you doing? Why aren't you obeying the king on this? 
And we actually don't know exactly why he didn't bow, because there's two schools of thought that scholars have come up with. One could be that this is a theological stance. Why don't bow? And then that would key in on the pay homage to. Because in the, in the East at that time in history, people bowed to people all the time, and even God's people bowed to people. It didn't necessarily involve worship. It was just sort of the polite thing to do. But maybe with that homage, there was some worship involved in that. And so maybe Mordecai didn't do it because of that reason. Either way, we know it involved him being a Jew. The second reason could be that he didn't bow up. That's not the reason. Is because Mordecai understands that Haman is descended from the Amalekites that did all this stuff to the ancient enemies of the Jewish people. And so his kind of attitude is, I'm not bowing to no Agagite, Agagite, Amalekite guy, not doing it kind of a deal. We don't know which, but either way, for him to take a stand like this, it's a gutsy thing to do because this is probably not going to go well. Verse 4. Now, when it was they had spoken daily to him, this is Mordecai's friends talking over and over to Mordecai, hey, you got to do this. And he wouldn't listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. This is what pride is. Pride is concentration on self. Pride is absorption of yourself. Your main focus is on yourself and how everything impacts you. And so what's happening here is all the other people are bowing to Haman. He didn't notice that Mordecai wasn't bowing. But now when somebody ratted Mordecai out, and now that he knows there's this one guy named Mordecai that refuses to bow, he's filled with rage. I mean, he can't stand it. That's all he can think about. He's hot. He's mad because he's prideful. And so pride gets no pleasure out of having something. It's only in having more of that than the next person. You know, that's how pride is. Hey, I want to have more than everybody else. That's pride. And pride is the comparison, the pleasure of being above the rest. Now, I want to make something clear. Not all of what we call pride today is sin against God. For example, um, it's not wrong. Pride, pride is not always wrong. It's not wrong, for example, to take pleasure in somebody complimenting you uh, or praising you. If that were true, if that was wrong, then we wouldn't praise our children because then we would be causing them to sin, right? And by the same token, it's not wrong to have a proper pride in your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or your school or even your church, you know, if that's kind of in a balance, that's, that's not really wrong. Pride is wrong when it elevates you. And some of those things you could be having pride in because it elevates you, then that's a problem. So pride is wrong when it elevates you. Pride is an endless ego calculation. And then how does it affect us? It's an endless ego calculation, but there's really two forms of pride. 
One is superiority type of pride. You're always calculating. You're always wondering. When you feel superior, you're always measuring. How's all this stuff affecting me? And superiority type of pride means as you're looking at how it affects me and you're keeping the math, the math is working out pretty good. You keep kind of winning. Things are good. But then there's another, and that's how we normally see pride. But there's another type of pride that we don't think is so prideful, but it is, and that is inferiority-based pride. Inferiority-based pride is when you're keeping track of how everything affects you, but then you're, you kind of melt down. You're kind of like, oh, all this happened to me, to me, to me, to me. And then you're down on yourself. You're always beating yourself up. And when you do that, you're just as self-absorbed as the pride guy that's into superiority. You're just as self-focused, even though you feel inferior. And you're just calculating the math, and the math's not going your way. So both conceit and self-contempt equally keep the focus on you, on me. It's all about me, no matter which way I see it. So there are three reasons where I believe pride is the foundational sin in the Bible. So I know that's a pretty big statement, so let me make my case. Three reasons why pride is the foundational sin in the Bible. Number one, because the devil became the devil through pride. Pride is the first sin. As a matter of fact, we know that the devil used to be an angel, Satan, Lucifer, but then he fell, and that was all about pride. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there are two prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah, and they both describe powerful, prideful kings in their time. But then they both go on to describe a supernatural being, a supernatural prince, and with words that cannot describe a human being, to talk about the supernatural prince or entity that's behind the pride of these kings. For example, in Isaiah, it says it this way, Isaiah 14, 13. Talking about Satan. Take a drink of water first. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the amount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is Satan's boasting all these eyes. That's the first sin, pride. So Satan fell. Long, and remember, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Jesus is telling us, or Scripture is telling us, that Satan fell to earth, and then he was around after that fall to tempt Eve, and that's how sin entered into the world. So that's the first reason, because the devil became the devil through pride. Secondly, because pride can cause every other vice or sin. Pride can cause, can cause every other vice or sin. For example, if you're angry or you're offended, usually that's because of pride. I didn't deserve that. How could they do that to me? That's not right. It's pride. If depressed even, why? Well, part of that could be because you can't 
stop thinking about yourself. How am I feeling? I'm not feeling as good as I should have been feeling. I'm not saying every time. I'm saying pride can lead to depression. When you're depressed, pride can be a part of that. Or if you're stressed, even that could be from pride. Just all these things, not just sins, but other issues we face in our life. You're stressed out. Well, that could be because you have pride thinking, only I can do this, nobody else can, and I don't have time, I'm not getting it all done, it's too much, I can't get it all. That's pride. And the third reason is because even when we do good, pride causes our motives to be sinful. This is the worst. This is where we do good things, things that God says are good, but even when we do good, a lot of times we have to check our motives because a lot of times we're doing the good not only for the good itself, but we're also doing the good so people will see us doing the good or know that we did that and think higher of us. So that boils down again to pride. It can affect even our motives even when we're doing something that's right. So the weird thing about pride is the more pride you have, the more it irritates you when you see somebody else with pride. It's, it's just always, it's about me. It's about me. Very self-focused. Okay, if that's what pride is, then the next issue you want to look at is what pride does. How bad is that? And there I want to talk about the deadliness of pride. What it does. So back to the text. Pride is deadly, and then we see this in Haman's response to Mordecai not bowing. We'll pick it up in verse 6. And this is talking about Haman. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. See how dark this turns, how fast? Because Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman. Haman is enraged, but it's not enough for him to kill Mordecai. He works it out where he's going to wipe out all the Jews, and not just in Susa, all the Jews, even the Jews that have gone back to Israel. In all the kingdom of Persia, he's going to wipe them out. And as he, as he does that, as he determines to do this, it's the beginning of a new year. And he does something kind of superstitious. He rolls the dice per or lots, casting lots, to determine which is going to be, when will be the best time to wipe the Jewish people out. When should that happen? And the lots coincidentally say the last month of the year. So he's got a whole year. And so he's like, okay, that's when I'll do it. December 13th, because he's doing this all on the 13th. And then we continue in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so that it's not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king... Let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out 
carry on the king's business, to put into the king's treasury. It's a huge amount. It's about a third of what annual Persian income. And we're wondering how would this guy get it? But he may be getting it by confiscating the plunder for the Jewish people. But anyway, he throws that out. Verse 10. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also. Do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors, who are over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, in the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa, and while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. You see, what? that's a lot of words, right? What's happening? Genocide is happening. Haman has just got King Ahasuerus to commit to destroying all the Jewish people in the entire province of Persia. This is all the Jewish people there is. And as they just plot this genocide and then send out all the instructions, what do they do? Sit down and have a drink. And then the population, they're all in an uproar going, what is going on? Why are you picking this one people? Why would you have them annihilated? Why are we committing genocide? Who's going to be next? We've never heard why this is, and on and on and on. But they don't care because pride is deadly. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Later, not today, later we're going to find out that Haman's pride causes his untimely death. Why? Because pride is deadly. Pride is deadly. But let's just stop for a moment and look. How is pride deadly? Here we go. First, pride makes you a fool because it keeps you from learning from your mistakes. When you mess up, humble people can just laugh at that. Yeah, I messed that up. And, and they'll tell people, well, they'll go out of their way to tell people, man, I messed that up. It's really bad. And you'll just laugh about it. But you'll also learn how not to do that again. But proud people can't laugh at themselves that way. When, when it's pointed out that they've messed up, their attitude is, okay, well, yeah, that didn't go as well as I wanted it to, but I can do that better than you can. Are you saying you can do it better than me? I don't think so. That's pride. That's superiority pride. But even inferiority pride, it reacts this way. Oh, you're right. I'm devastated. I'm going to have a meltdown. I can never do this again. I can never attempt it. This is just not me. No way can I do this. I can't pull this off. And you have a meltdown in inferiority. 
So first is that pride makes you a fool. Second, pride makes you evil. Pride makes you evil. Pride is the hellish petri dish that grows all types of sin in our life. Pride is like the root of all other sins. Think about it. There's no bitterness without pride. There's no racism without pride. There's almost no anger without pride. And so, and we see this in people, you know, how this happens. But caution, if you're sitting here thinking, man, Kevin, you know, I got a friend of mine that should have been here this morning. You know, that, this, this would be perfect for them. That's pride. That's pride. Because you're thinking, hey, I don't need this as much as this other guy needs it. That's pride. It takes pride. If you're thinking it's only a problem or a bigger problem for somebody else. So if we know what pride is, and then we know what it does, then the last thing is simply the cure for it. What's the cure? And the cure is humility. And you've probably all heard this quote from C.S. Lewis. Great quote. It says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Right. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. You don't have to beat yourself up to be humble. You just need to get off of you and think about other people. That's what he's saying. So the cure for it is, first of all, we have to adopt a humble attitude before God. When we adopt a humble attitude before God, we will also be able to, to adopt a humble attitude before other people. So God and others. 1 Peter 5, 6, and there's a lot of verses in James, Peter, other places. It says this, Philippians, it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. What's he saying? Humble yourselves before God. Hey, you want to attain, you want to get this done, you want to, I mean, some of that's natural. We want to do things, we want to make a difference. Well, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand and let him worry about when you're exalted. Let him figure that out. You don't have to make that happen. Just do the right thing. And one of the best ways to develop this humble attitude before God and others is to serve, to serve other people. Because when we serve, we're putting, especially when not many people see it, we're putting somebody else's needs above ours. That's a humble spirit. When we serve God, we're being humble. So, for example, here in our church, children's ministry is the place where we need the most help. So, if you think this would help you, and it probably help all of us, you could just volunteer to serve. Talk to Amy. For our children's, we have a background check and some different things. But talk to Amy, and, and she can hook you up, and you can serve. I mean, when I'm not preaching, I'll go around and talk to the, almost every time, I'll go around and talk to the children's workers, because they're the unsung heroes. They're doing what most people don't want to do, and just thank them and just appreciate their humility to do that. So... Adopt a humble attitude before God and others. And then secondly, we must admit our sin. It's a little different than the first. Remember, Jesus told a story about humility. He told a story where two guys go to the temple. 
One's a traitor, a tax collector who is, you know, sold out to Rome and hurting the Jewish people. And the other is a Pharisee who keeps all these legalistic traditions and follows every law in the Old Testament. And remember the story? The the tax collector throws himself on the steps of the temple and says, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have messed up. I need mercy. And then the Pharisee is standing a little bit distance away. He sees that, maybe hears it. And the Pharisee says, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. And then God says, what? Well, Jesus tells us that the first guy went home justified, the sinner. And the Pharisee did not. That's what Jesus is telling us. We've got to admit our sin. We have to do the exact same thing, admit the truth about ourselves. And then last, we need to accept that only God's mercy elevates us. Think about that. Only God's mercy elevates us, not our merit. I remember once uh, when I was a teenager, my youth pastor came to me and said, and he was actually leaving, and so we were helping him move, and a guy I respected big time, and he came and he kind of pulled me aside from some other people, and he said, Kevin, you have a problem with pride. And I said, that's not true. I'm one of the humblest people you've ever wanted. No, I didn't, I didn't react that way. But, he, but, but I was surprised. I mean, I was like, whoa. I mean, it, it, it hit me. And I started thinking about that. The next day, the next week, the next month, I thought that about for a long time. I thought that for years I thought about that. And when you start thinking about that, you realize that anything you have ever accomplished that you can call good in your life is only by the grace of God. That's the only reason. Some people say, whoa, Kevin, you don't understand. I'm the hardest worker in my company, and I'm sort of tired of these guys that are just, you know, not really contributing. Yeah, but the question is, why are you the hardest worker in the company? Because you're the smartest? Well, God gave you that. Because you're the most energetic? Well, God gave you that. Because you grew up with a good work ethic? Well, God gave you that. Anything good that we've done, and hard work is good, it's always from God. Anything good that we have, God has given that to us. It's not because of our merit. Now, we can use it. We can do what God would want us to do with it. But we don't really get the credit because God gave us that. God gave us energy or health or whatever it is. A faster metabolism, you know, whatever. That's God's gift. As a matter of fact, there's a verse that speaks to that, that Paul wrote. He says, for who regards you as superior? It's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see what he's saying there? Every good thing that we're tempted to be proud of is actually a gift from God. God has allowed us 
to do that or to accomplish that. It's all him. Remember in the, and I'm going to close here, in Jesus' most famous sermon at the very beginning of it, the Sermon on the Mount, he said something. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's poor in spirit? Poor in spirit is realizing as you contemplate God that you have no merits, that you are utterly bankrupt as far as any merit from God is concerned, that you are poor in spirit. You have nothing to give to God to make God say, wow, or that's good. Nothing. You're poor in spirit. And it's just the opposite of pride. You see, poor in spirit as we understand our spiritual bankruptcy. We understand our inability to come to God on our own apart from God's grace. We can't even do that. The proud, on the other hand, they're blinded by pride. And they kind of react in two ways. And we, I talk to people like this all the time. And on one hand, they'll say they don't think they need God. You know, hey, yeah, you want to talk about God? Well, I don't really need God in my life. I'm good without God. And, you know, and when they do that, they're sort of placing themselves above God. But there's something any, that's worse that I think even more people respond this way. They say, hey, God should accept me because I deserve his acceptance. God should accept me. God would never put me in hell. God should accept me because I'm a pretty good person. I deserve God's acceptance. God should be good with me. God knows me. God knows I I try to do the right thing. It's nuts because God's telling us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all messed up. None of us deserve heaven. Zero. Zip. And it was so bad and so dark for all of us that in God's love for us, he had to do something drastic. Through the seed of Abraham, the Messiah finally did come, the Son of God. And God left heaven, Jesus did, voluntarily, clothed himself in human flesh, lived a perfect life with no sin, and therefore became the only one qualified to die for somebody else's sin. And because God is infinite and Jesus is infinite, his one voluntary death would take care of all of our sins if we come to him on his terms, which is faith, putting our trust in Jesus alone. So we're going to close this service in just a moment, but I don't want to close the service without you talk, thinking about that most important decision. If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? And you would say yes. And now I'm going to ask you another question. question. Okay, yes, so you expect to go to heaven. Yes, I expect to go to heaven. Here's the next question. Why? Why will you go to heaven? I want you to answer that in your minds right now. Why should you personally go to heaven? Formulate the answer. And here's what I'm telling you. If your answer in your head right now starts off something like this, well, I've always tried to be a good person. That's wrong. 
You haven't always tried to be a good person. Believe me, I know. If you start that answer by saying, well, because I've done this and I've done that or I've prayed to God and I've asked and I try to live his way and I try to do what God wants and I talk to God all the time. Wrong, 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 wrong. Right? One reason. I don't deserve to go to heaven. The only way I can go to heaven is because Jesus died voluntarily to pay for my personal sins. And I've put my trust in Jesus and only Jesus when it comes to me going to heaven because I got nothing to contribute. If that wasn't your answer, then you need to get that right and make sure you have right the most important decision that you're ever going to make in your life. Let's stand together in prayer. I just want to lead you in a short prayer. If you're ready to commit to God in that way, to put your trust in Jesus alone, you can express that trust in prayer, and you should. You should call out to God this way. Something like this. Make it your own. God knows your every thought. God, I admit that I'm a sinner and I've done nothing to deserve heaven, but I also understand that you love me and Jesus died for me. And you say that if I just put my faith, my trust in Jesus and only Jesus, that I become yours and I'm guaranteed heaven. And so God, if I've not done that before, I'm doing that right now. And I also ask you to come into my life through your spirit to help me love you back and to follow you. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.